Welcome to the Pacific Forest Foundation's Talking Timber, where each week you meet the professionals behind the Northwest timber industry. Hi, and welcome. I'm Diane Mettler, Executive Director of the Pacific Logging Congress. And in this episode of Talking Timber, we will be speaking to Russ Vaughan, founder and CEO of Vaughan Timbers. This is the first of a two-episode talk with Russ about mass timber and how telling a good story about the industry can have a powerful impact. In the meantime, I want to thank our sponsors, the Pacific Logging Congress and the Pacific Forest Foundation. Both are dedicated to providing sound technical education about the forest industry. This year, the Pacific Forest Foundation will be giving out thousands of dollars of scholarships. You can check out their work at www.pacificloggingcongress.org and www.pacificforestfoundation.org. Also, we want to thank our new sponsors, Timber West Magazine and Logging and Sawmilling Journal. You can subscribe now for free to both magazines by just going to their website, www.forestnet.com. Okay, now let's hear from Russ and how he got involved in the industry. So I've been essentially in the industry, forest industry, logging, sawmilling, um, since before I was born. Uh, my, my uh, great-grandfather was a homestead sawmiller in the uh, early 1900s in uh, western Montana, north Idaho, and northeast Washington. And then my family, uh, my, my grandfather and his brother started Vaughan Brothers Lumber in 1952, just outside of Colville, Washington. Um, and for those that don't know, Colville is about an hour north of Spokane. And uh, it's, it's a lot more like North Idaho or Western Montana than it is like the coast of Washington. Um, it's a dry site and um, it's just a, it, it's a really nice place to be. And so anyway, we, we've been, been operating, my family's been operating in this area for a very long time. Um, I went to Washington State University, uh, studied business there, and then um, knew I always wanted to get back in the forest industry. And so that's, uh, I spent a couple years in the Seattle area, then some time in, uh, in places like Grays Harbor and Everett, and even up into, uh, into the lower mainland and, and Vancouver Island, buying logs and working with a lot of the folks on the west side and then uh, putting a lot of those logs on rail cars and shipping them to the east side of the mountains and the reason for that was that um, there wasn't a real big market for the uh, at that time for the west coast chip and saw in certain places and our family had always specialized in small logs and so it was a nice uh, nice fill gap there for a while and yeah so I've been in the industry of various types, um, yeah. my entire professional career, basically. And so the company now, what is the, what's your focus? So Vaughan Brothers Lumber was um, where I spent most of my professional career. So from, you know, working between breaks in school, um, in the log yard and in the woods, and you know, I've run chainsaws, I've run, um, Cats, built roads, dump trucks, you know, done all those things. I did that um, through my teenage and early 20s. And then when I graduated from college, you know, I started working more in the business uh, and, and on the business um, than actually out in the woods and doing those things. 
And so I was, uh, a set of circumstances led me to be the vice president of Bogman Brothers Lumber at a very early age. I think I was 24 years old. Um, and so I spent a great deal of time uh, helping get that business through some tough times. The um, national forest surrounds us here. And so just like the spotted owl on the West Coast, almost all areas got um, hit by a reduction in federal cut. And so we had to kind of navigate through that. So um, when I was growing up, Vaughan Brothers had three mills and almost 500 employees in the Tri-County area in Northeast Washington. And then by the time I had taken over the operations um, in 2005, we were down to just one mill in Colville and about 120 employees. So in these small towns, that's really tough to do. And so, um, you know, uh, I was, it was a trial by fire. So I jumped right in and was trying to update um, what we were doing to make sure that we could survive. And, and we did, fortunately. A lot of people talk about the global financial crisis and then the housing um, bubble that burst. But prior to that, we had some really good years. Um, and so uh, we actually went from this retraction to a little bit of expansion. Um, so I, I helped lead that where we acquired a stud mill in Andre County, um, formerly owned by uh, Steve Herman and his family called Pondre Valley Fiber. And then in 2011, um, after the, the financial crisis and navigating through the uh, downturn in the lumber industry, um, we actually were doing a lot of work in the uh, Australian dimensional market. And so we were exporting lumber there because that market actually did pretty well through that period of time. And so um, we acquired a mill in Midway, British Columbia, formerly a Pope and Talbot mill. And it was kind of interesting. We weren't looking at the time to be involved in a Canadian operation, but the community of Midway was very compelling and invited um, us up there. And so I went and met with them and it's kind of interesting. I, I gave them a number of hurdles to jump through for us to be interested and they did it. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, it came full circle. We were three mills and, and rather robust. And then we made some changes really focused on small logs and forest uh, product utilization and um, had grown back to three mills. And then that was, uh, it was, it was about 2015 or 16 where really started to see, I knew about cross laminated timber and some of these other uh, mass timber products. Um, and they were starting to show up here, not just for buildings, but for also um, oil and gas uh, access mats. And so I had always communicated with my dad the need for us to be more vertically integrated or get more towards the consumer or the final purchaser rather than just producing commodities. And the reason for that there's a couple of things. One, I was in marketing prior to, to taking over the operation. The, the interesting thing about it was that what we did in the forest was very compelling for people that they're really concerned about the environment and, you know, want to have a conversation that may be an environmentalist about what's going on in the forest, but they're not, they're not against cutting all trees. They're against um, what they think might be going on. 
and what their perception is. And so we took a lot of time, created videos, took some time to go out in the forest with these people, collaborate, do those things. Great. So after doing all these things, what did you come away with? And so when we went through that process, um, it dawned on me that the market really didn't have a way to discern when you're out there purchasing um, between one product or another. And so we thought, well, we could get closer to the consumer that cares about this, whether it be a trust plant, maybe Gulan beans or something, that then we could get more value for the story that is what we're doing out in the forest. And so that was kind of the entry point. And then cross-laminated timber was developing and, and this, this mass timber movement at the same time. Um, I took some time, went to Europe in 2016, visited some of the state-of-the-art facilities in Austria and Germany and Italy, and um, was really blown away by the way that the um, kind of the evolution of the way that their forest products industry had developed and how they'd looked at um, increasing costs of logs and wood products and figured out how to get more integrated in the value chain so they can provide products that are a larger component of the build. And so they could afford to buy the logs essentially. And you know, the, these things when you're traveling across the country or across the world, I should say, and you're in different countries, you're speaking different languages. And so there are certain things where you're not sure you got it. And then there are other things where, you know, it doesn't matter what language it is. And there's a gentleman there that says, you know, we do this so we can create more value. So we can afford to buy any log we want. And that was something that I knew exactly what they were talking about, because that's a big thing in the forest products world, especially for sawmills. And so that really turned the tide for their business. So they went from, you know, making a commodity product to making a more, uh, integrated engineered product. And for me, that, that clicked a light bulb on. And um, I was, this is the future and, and we need to be part of it. And so uh, then I came back, had conversations with my dad and, and, you know, that history of going through these challenges, these ups and downs, um, you know, having to navigate special credit with the banks a couple of times and and those are very difficult things to do. It's a lot of work. It makes things uh, difficult. And when you go through that, you want to make sure that you do as much as you can to prevent that from happening again. And so the conversation was really about how do we make sure that we don't put our family business at risk over something that, you know, don't know what the future might hold with this product. And so it was then that we decided that um, the best thing to do would be to create its own separate entity. Okay. Um, I would run that entity. So I, I left Vaughan Brothers um, and I actually, uh, I started Vaughan Timbers on my own with some investors and some capital that I had put together. Great. So how did this new company evolve? In 2017, we were formed and we broke ground on Boggan Timbers, cross laminated timber and glue lamb bean plant in uh, May of 2018. And by July of 2019, we were certified in producing cross laminated timber and glue lamb beans. 
And so, um, yeah, so, so I left Vaughn Brothers to run this. We started a whole new group here, um, hired new people. A lot of people think that, um, you know, because of my history with Vaughn Brothers or because it's both Vaughn's, it's the same thing. And that's understandable, but we're really um, completely separate. The, but we have some very thick connective yeah. tissue. There are a few times where, um, you know, they're low on inventory of one particular product and we can find it elsewhere. And, but it's still in the, you know, high 90s percentages of material coming from Boggan Brothers, which is great because, you know, I want to create as much value there as we can create here and for our customers in, in the marketplace. So it's a really great um, symbiotic relationship, but we're also looking to see how we can have positive influence in the marketplace um, and, and help others. Oh, that makes sense. Uh, can you kind of give me some examples? For instance, um, we're talking with the University of Montana right now on uh, their new uh, school of forestry building that they're doing and they've announced it's a beautiful building. And, um, you know, to me, resource and where it's come from and how it impacts the built environment is really important, especially if you're going to expose it. So it doesn't make a lot of sense, although it would be fine to take product out of Washington state, make it, and then go build a building in Montana, especially a forestry building, right? So what we started doing is talking to them about how do we honor that? How do we source from the Montana mills that are there? Not only the Montana mills, but what about the mills that are specific, specifically have a relationship with the University of Montana and the Montana Forestry School? And are there landowners that are also, you know, they might have an endowment or something like that. So how do we tie all that together? And it just goes back into the whole resource side of it. So uh, even though we might be the best to press the, the material and create the product, um, it's still for that application would be ideal to be a Montana product. Yeah. And the same is true. Um, you know, within the state of Washington, you know, we want to be able to offer um, products within the state for state projects. I think it's especially important for um, university projects and school projects and those kinds of things. And whether it comes from the west side or the east side, that's not as important as I think telling a yeah. story. And, and so to me, that's, you'll see like that's the real connective tissue is telling the story about where things are coming from in the forest because it's i think it's important to a lot of people and it to me you know you see that farm to table table movement yeah. people understand that mm -hmm. and they like that and it's um knowing where whatever it is that you buy knowing where it came from is important so um you know, we want to go from the forest to the frame. Yeah. And I even heard somebody say one time, you know, we want to go from the forest to the family room and, you know, tell that story and, and the warmth of wood. Oh, I can see that. Uh, the farm to table analogy is a good one. You know, I think that, that having, you know, West Coast and Washington State 
and in Oregon, Oregon products from the state of Oregon to go into the projects that are there so they can help tell that story is important. And then as we can um, make these products here and send them around the country and around the world, they can have the story of our place as well. And so I think that's, that's what we're trying to do. And we think that that um, adds a lot of value. And I think that, uh, you know, we're at, the, we're at this kind of interesting place where forests are being seen as a climate solution, um, especially if done properly. And if we share our stories properly, I think that in our industry, we've become a little gun shy, if you will, on talking to environmentalists, like they're, they're going to try to shut us down. But the new era of environmentalists really want to know, and they're really excited about this, and they're, they're almost like gobsmacked when they realize how everything goes together. And so I think it's, it's important that we, as a forest industry, open ourselves up to those discussions and not be so fearful that somebody's kind of trying to attack us. But we have a great story to tell. We are part of the solution. Um, we can improve, but we're still doing a lot of things right. And I think that if we focus on that, we're going to all be a lot better off and, and we're going to create some alliances that didn't seem possible in the past. Hi, we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors, the Pacific Forest Foundation, the Pacific Logging Congress, as well as Timberwest Magazine and Logging and Sawmilling Journal. Due to the coronavirus, the 2020 PLC Congress has been moved to 2021, but that doesn't mean they won't be active and involved this year promoting sound technical forest education. To find out more about what they're doing, just visit www.pacificloggingcongress.com. Okay, back to Russ. So backing up a little bit here, you haven't actually been open for almost a year yet. So what's the challenges of doing a, a brand new company and everything you're talking about and hiring and producing and finding customers and holy smokes. Yeah, well, it's... It, yeah, it is. It's challenging. It's exciting and challenging. Um, you know, some days it's more exciting than it is challenging. Other days it's more challenging than it is exciting. Um, uh, the, you know, the biggest challenge is really sharing with people what this product is and how it can be used and how it can benefit them. Um, you know, in our building industry, we have, and there's a lot of anecdotal evidence if you just listen about, you know, they don't build things like they used to. And, you know, the, the, it's hard to find good help. It's hard to, hard to find a good craftsman. You know, we take lumber and we, you know, send it out to the marketplace and we hope somebody knows what to do with it. And a lot of times there's, there's some really great framers out there. But even in the framing industry, um, we've seen for the last 20 years a um, automation of that industry. So... Trust plants, for instance. For instance, um, you know, it's really not that long ago that people scoffed at the idea of building trusses in a plant versus building them on site. You've seen this kind of evolution of products to try to simplify the build site and speed it up because construction is notoriously slow. Um, it's you know you're de you're depending on people to do these very finite calculations and then execute them and then we stack the build the builds with all these different trades and we hope that they're all in concert but it's just like a business or anything else it's a difficult thing to do and so 
more and more people have looked at you know kits and modular and other ways to try to bridge that gap to speed it up and CLT really helps us with that and cross laminated timber is basically a really simple process of taking uh, a minimum of three layers of wood and you take the first layer you lay it down you take the second layer 90 degrees and you lay it on top and then you take the other layer and, and layer it longitudinally so it kind of looks like a hardwood floor or a deck but it's in a big thick panel and those panels are structural, but they're also um, pre-engineered to fit in a specific location in a home. Oh, sure, that makes sense. And it would save time at the construction end too, right? So think about a log home manufacturer. So a lot of times they, they don't take logs to the build site and just put them together. I mean, they used to way back when, but now log home manufacturers take them to their specific spot they find the logs, they, they put them together, and they, they do the assembly there and the, 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 the craftsmanship there, and they can control that, right? Then they take it apart, they label everything, they ship it to site, and then it's reconstructed. It's actually assembled rather than constructed. So we're doing that on just a bigger scale. So now we we take a whole set of um, drawings from an architect and we dissect it into the components that we make. And then we try to figure out, okay, what's, what engineered connection systems do we need to make sure all this stuff goes together? And when we do that, we're able to put massive components together very quickly and effectively. Um, so there's a project we're doing here locally right now. Um, first day, we were watching them put the panels in place on top of the glue lambs that had already been fabricated. And for them to do a uh, 53 foot by 30 foot um, bay of uh, it's a roof deck, to do that, it took them uh, 55 minutes. Wow. First time they'd ever done it. And so they, they're just getting faster and faster at that. So we're talking a 20,000 square foot um, building all glue lambs interconnected. We send them out with the connections already attached to the glue lambs. So they're just setting them and locking them in place. And then the CLT goes over the top of that. And that's going to take about four business days. Wow. You know, versus, you know, tr more traditional. So this whole trend of people trying to do things better and faster, what we're doing is just a lot of those trades that are stacked on top of one another we're doing them in house. Okay. So we're trying to, um, to, to take advantage of the, um, the factory setting and the, uh, the ways that we can replicate things at high quality and then take that to the job site and assemble those rapidly. So you aren't at the mercy of the elements as much. Um, you're not at the mercy of mismeasurements and these things. Okay, yeah, sure. And you can be seriously precise. We're, um, you know, inside a millimeter of tolerance from one corner to another, not just piece to piece. I mean, all of our connections are within a sixteenth of, a of an inch tolerance in all cuts. Um, but the buildings themselves go together very true. We, we don't ever see like, oh, we did this or that because it, 
if it didn't work in the 3D model, it won't work in reality. But the, the challenge is like, how many of the general contractors out there know about that? How many of the builders and just owners of property that are looking to build something that could be built in mass timber, do they know about it? And the answer at this point is, for the most part, no. It's, it's a new and developing marketplace. Um, there are, I think, seven certified manufacturers in North America. Um, so there's not very many of us yet. There's, uh, there's about 60 in Europe. Okay. So, and, and the manufacturers here um, are probably at the smaller uh, size comparatively to the European counterpart. Oh, that is a challenge. We've still got a long ways to go. The good news is that, that North America builds with wood. And in Europe, they traditionally don't. So they're now trying to get it more built with wood, um, especially in the commercial space. And by doing that, um, they're really focused on the climate advantage versus other building materials. So for the wood products industry in Europe, it's been a great thing. And it's going to be a great thing here too. It allows us to tell the story because, you know, the forest industry is just often forgotten. We build homes out of wood, but we cover it up with drywall. Um, we, we send stuff out and it just kind of disappears in the marketplace. So it's really easy to, um, in many cases, just demonize what you don't know about because you don't see it every day and you don't associate the beauty with it. Now with mass timber, not only are we using a lot of wood, we're seeing it and people are falling in love with it all over again. And, you know, we're seeing people that, a great example, um, Andrew Waugh out of London, he runs Waugh Thistleton Architects. They're the leading mass timber architect in the world as far as I'm concerned. Was it because they love timber? Well, they do now, but that's not why they started. They were looking for the best product. And they were actually surprised that it became timber. Um, and so they started doing their research. They started looking at the, um, not only the quality and the, the way that the builds are faster and better, but how much better is it to build with a natural substance, especially one that's sustainably grown and harvested and one that supports rural communities and rural jobs. And that story is what they fell in love with. And the fact that, you know, and he shows a slide on his presentation where he's got his hand, hand out and there's some seeds in it. He says, you know, with these seeds, we grew this structure. And it's just a, a paradigm shift for a lot of people don't realize it, that we're actually, you know, growing the buildings. And, and if we do it in certain ways, it's, it's a really um, compelling case for people to build with, with wood. But it's a story that needs to be told over and over again. So do you have some ideas for getting the story out there? Um, in the, our industry, we have a group called Woodworks. Mm -hmm. um, Woodworks is uh, funded primarily from the um, Softwood Lumber Board that is also tied together as, a, um, as an extension of the Canadian-American Softwood Lumber Agreement that has, uh, has since expired, but a lot of those funds that were generated by the formula of uh, uh, 
Canadian lumber coming to the United States help fund these efforts to use more wood. And Woodworks has developed into this great group that does um, seminars and conferences around the country to work with architects, engineers, developers, um, you name it, to really educate them on the process. And um, they've been very successful. Um, you know, for mass timber, building a market's really important. And right now, um, I think there's been something like 220 mass timber projects either built or started in total in the United States. So it's not that many, right? Um, right now, in design or permit, there are 440. So more than double what we've built, more than double what's under construction now, is in the pipeline. So, and that's growing exponentially. Wow, that's impressive. And if you're paying attention, and if you're following a social media feed, and in many cases, reading the Wall Street Journal, there was a story last week about a, a, one of the largest mass timber projects being announced and plowing forward um, in Cleveland. And it's going to be a tremendous amount of wood. And, there's, um, and they're doing it because of all the things I just talked about, beauty, the environmental footprint, uh, you know, millennials and, and, and uh, Gen Xers, they really care about their impact. And um, I think that, that the market is starting to reflect that. And so if they can have a story that, um, that really is uh, compelling along those lines, they're going to generate more interest and, and effectively have a better return for their buildings because of it. So um, all those things are real positive, but it's still a little bit of a struggle to make sure that that growth aligns with our product, production capacity and, and making sure that we have the sales pipeline that we need to go into the future. And it's interesting because in, in the lumber business, you just sell what you produce and the market goes up and goes down. Um, here, we're selling to projects that might be six weeks of our production. Um, you know, and so we, we have to get our mind around what we have to do for that particular project and then we have to stack those projects into the future to make sure we hit the delivery date so i tell people it's a lot like buying um, a big custom piece of equipment and a lot of people kind of scratch their head well how is that when you buy a piece of equipment sawmill equipment um, maybe a custom piece of logging equipment that has to be put together. Um, you typically, when you sign a contract, you provide a deposit, a down payment, right? So that gets the ball rolling. That gets you a production slot. And then if it's a really big piece of equipment, and let's say a cross-laminated timber press that we have here, um, it can be, you know, one to five million dollars. So they have to know that this deal is going to go forward. Well, the same is true for us. So put in that deposit and then then we go through that process of designing it just like you would a piece of equipment what options and how does this go and what do we do to fit it into this category and you really finite get the finite details um, for the deal and so we're doing those things and sometimes 
we might add more fabrication um, and they need special cutting or special attachments put on or this that, or the other thing. Um, and then, then we schedule that production window so we can deliver based on when they need their product delivered. And then so there are progress payments that are made in that regard. And we're trying to figure out, like, how do we make sure we're matching up with the way that building finance is done? Oh, yeah. So we're really working right now to educate the, um, our banking industry to say, okay, how do we get an operating line of credit that matches with what they're doing? Because we really need to meet them where they're at. Oh, absolutely. That makes sense. You need to plan and make sure you get the money out there when it's needed, right? Getting back to that in the beginning, we do absolutely need to have a, a timeline that fits. So, for instance, we have right now, uh, I think, 26 quotes out there right now for different projects. Um, if they all came to fruition, we would have to pick winners and losers um, because, you know, that if it takes six weeks to do a certain amount of work and you have two projects that need delivered within the same window. Um, and if you can't add a second shift to make that happen, um, somebody's going to have to either find it elsewhere or they're going to have to change their schedule. Uh, we're hoping that they alter their schedule, but, um, what we're trying to do is, is, is make people realize that are making these decisions that, Planning way out ahead is the most important part. This isn't like buying lumber or steel or concrete or anything like that for a build site where, well, these, these materials don't sit on a site. You know, they, are, they might be a stack of lumber, but we have to then finger joint those together to get them into the, the long pieces. We've got to press them together. Then we custom cut them. So there isn't this like stack of CLT out there that can just be delivered to your job site. And so that's where that gap comes in, because a lot of times if you're dealing with a, um, let's say, let's say we're talking about a, an apartment complex. It's a five-story building that could be built with stick frame or uh, cross-laminated timber. The stick frame, you have your estimator go out there and figure out how much board footage they're going to need. They call up... Uh, a building supply or wholesale distributor like in Seattle you might call Matthews Lumber and say hey what what do you do you guys have this what's the price and they'll give you a price and that's how you build your estimate and you don't really do anything besides that they might go okay so when are you going to need it so we can start to think about when we order it but for the most part it's out there in the marketplace for CLT you really need to be talking to the manufacturer or manufacturer's rep and go, okay, we're going to need, um, you know, 80,000 square feet of Douglas fir, larch, three-ply CLT to finish this building. And it's going to have to have these elements in it. Well, it has, to, the wood has to be procured. You have to go buy the lumber. Um, the other thing is that the, the lumber has to be drier than it would be typically if it were just coming from a mill. So, um, Lamb stock for blue lamb beans is 15% or less. Standard stock is 19% or less. We really want it to get in that 10 to 12% range because it added more stability once we have it all glued up. So all those little things make it a little bit more complicated to buy the fiber um, ahead of time. And so that communication 
if we get a contract, that starts a chain of events that needs some uh, some time to get done. Do you find yourself having to do some of the education to help people with that up front? So or so they they understand there's going to be this gap, and we do you work with the architects and stuff up front. Yeah, so we do a lot of lunch and learns. Um, and, you know, right now dealing with the uh, coronavirus kind of slowdown, uh, a lot of people are working from home. So we've actually taken advantage of Zoom and we have um, done some group lunch and learns for architects, engineers. Um, we try to get about one of those done a week. And we actually did one for um, an engineering firm. I think there was 181 people on it. Wow. So, you know, we got a lot of impact. Um, and so what what's helping there is they do understand to engage sooner. Um, they're asking a lot more questions and they're trying to uh, specify the project in ahead of time. And it, to me, the, the story I like to tell people is, you know, the, the traditional way that we build is like, the Legos of 15, 20 years ago. Now there was a bucket of material, a bucket of Legos, and you built stuff with it. There were people that were creative and good enough to build something really special. And then there were the rest of us that you know built something that resembled what we wanted to build. We want to thank our sponsors, Pacific Forest Foundation and the Pacific Logging Congress, as well as Timberwest Magazine and Logging and Sawmilling Journal for making this podcast possible. And most importantly, we want to thank Russ for taking time out to be part of Talking Timber. Please tune in next time for the second half of this interview. Until then, take care.